Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is supported this week by Blue Handle Publishing, a locally owned indie publisher with titles available from local authors, including Charles D'Amico and Andrew Brandt. Blue Handle currently has two new books available for pre-order. They are The Wizard's Brew by Jordan Reed and Black Bear Lake by Leslie Leotode. You can find these and other Blue Handle titles at bluehandlepublishing.com. That's bluehandlepublishing.com. And as part of our partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to West Texas A&M University online at wtamu.com. Read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. That's brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Glenda Moore. Glenda is the proprietor of Kind House Ukraine Bakery, where she uses baked goods to save the lives of people living in Ukraine. And this isn't just a recent thing. She's been doing this since 2014. But with the current Russian invasion of Ukraine, I knew that Glenda would know as much about what's happening there as anyone else in Amarillo. And I figured that this episode represented the perfect opportunity to invite her to tell her story. So here's Glenda Moore. Glenda Moore, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So I've wanted to talk to you for a long time and current events uh, dictated that I better talk to you now. So I'm really glad to have you uh, recording. And I want to start, though, the same way I start with all of my guests and just ask you why you're here in Amarillo. How did you end up in this area? Well, I would say that's my parents' fault. Okay. <laughs> so we moved here whenever I was 14. And so I've been here ever since. Where'd you move from? We kind of moved all over. So I lived in about 24 different places by the time I was 14. Wow. Like a military so, family? or No, what? just a moving family. Okay. So we lived in Arizona, New Mexico. Um, we did live in Utah, California, Colorado, um, Oklahoma, and Texas. I was born in Albuquerque. Okay. So... Why, what, what brought your family to Amarillo? Do you know? I think my dad had a position at Bell's in the, in the mall. He was a manager there. So, okay. Yeah. I remember that Bell's. Yeah. I used to shop there. After you came to Amarillo at that age, did you stay here? Yes. I've been here ever since. And whenever I got married, that was kind of a prerequisite. I was like, look, I'm going to get married to you, but we're never leaving. <laughs> Do you know why? Having moved so often as a kid, why Amarillo was the stopping point? You know, for me, I just want to believe that Amarillo is just the richest, most uh, wonderful, friendly place on the planet. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I just want to believe that God wanted me to be here. So that's where I'm at. Where did you go to high school? I went to Tascosa. Okay. And so did my husband and our two girls. So... Did you stick around here after graduation? Did you go away to college or anything like that? I went like to Emerald College. I went to WT. Um, I actually didn't go back to college until after my oldest was six years old. And then I went to Emerald College for two years and went straight to WT. Um, the Emerald community, again, amazing. And uh, without the support of Emerald College and helping me, my, I had a two-week-old baby at the time. Wow, and yeah. Yeah, it was really crazy. So I was working full-time and going to college at the same time. So um, I graduated when she was four, and so, like, right on time and worked like an, an insane person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what were you studying? What was your degree? Uh, I got an education degree. Okay. So I worked for AISD for 19 years. 
Did you teach something specific? I taught second, third, and fourth grade. Okay. And um, I loved all the grades. I probably like the fourth graders better because they're ornery and Mm -hmm. they can talk back and they've got kind of a a little quirk about them. Yeah, they've (laughs) they've formed enough enough personality Uh by that point. Uh Yeah. What schools did you teach at? Uh, I taught at Emerson. Okay. So the I whole was at, time? Then? Yeah. I was at Emerson for 11 years. I was there for five years as a teacher's assistant getting my degree. Mm-hmm. And then um, I taught there for six years. So I was there 11 years total. What did you like about teaching at Emerson? Oh, I love diversity. I loved, I loved the families that just flowed in and... Mm-hmm. They were so supportive. They wanted their kids to have a good life. And, um, you know, they came here because they wanted their kids to have a good life. It wasn't it wasn't even a question. So you didn't have to talk very long to a mama for her to say that she would come sit in class <laughs> with their kids the next day if needed. So it was uh, just to make sure that they behaved. Yes, or... just to make sure that they got that they learned and that they were doing what they were supposed to. So they want their kids to be enriched and they want them to have a good life. Okay. I mean, was that always your goal? Like growing up, did you want to get into education? Was that something that you knew early or did you just kind of figure it out? I don't think I knew early on. I just, I knew that I wanted to be a mom and, um, and I don't think I really had a belief that I could even finish college or that I could Hmm. do any of that. So, uh, just somebody had come to speak at our school and said, Hey, you ought to, you ought to try education. And my principal said, you need to be, you need to be a teacher. You should do this. And so, I thought, well, I might as well try. And, you know, it's just the encouragement of people in Amarillo just really mm-hmm. um, cheerleading you all along and getting you where you need to go. So Were be- you first, first generation to go to college? I was. Okay, I was. So that was kind of a new thing. Yes. It wasn't an expectation, really. No, until... no. In fact, after I went to college, my mom went to college and got her really? degree. And then my niece went to college and got her degree. So, yeah, it was very much a snowball. Yeah, so effect. you were a catalyst for yeah, a lot of other people. yes. That's really interesting. I, I haven't heard that story. I, I've <laughs> talked to a lot of first-generation college students, but never once I did it. Then my mom thought she could do it. And yes. That, that, that's so cool to hear. Yes. My mom um, was only 62 when she went back to college and got her degree, and she taught for five years before she passed okay. away. So, wow. Yeah, she loved that. I went to AC also, and that was one of the things that I just thought was so cool about it and and probably was unique back in the 90s when I was there and is still unique now is how many returning students you have you know you you might be in a class with a young mom a grandmother you know somebody who's your parents age it was just I I met so many different people just even working for the newspaper at AC you know there were there were 60 year olds on the news staff at that point it was really interesting well, and don't you find that they still keep up with you? Because that's the thing yeah. is all of my college professors, they still want to know how I'm doing and where I'm going and what's happening. And mm-hmm. like, it's just a truly a, a large network of a larger family. Yeah, I agree. I, that's one of the real, um, I think the real benefits that Emerald College provides to this area. And it's changed yeah. a lot, you know, since I've been there. So, yes. um, all right. Obviously you are not still a teacher. So tell me tell me how that happened or kind of how your career path began to branch out. Sure. In 2013, um, I went to Ukraine in the summertime and I went with Eastern European missions. They print Bibles and other people's language. Mm-hmm. And so I actually went with my sister-in-law, who is Virginia Stubbs. Um, she talked me into it. I tell her that I blame her for me loving Ukraine. <laughs> but I went that summer and I really fell in love, not just with um, the orphans and the kids that we worked with, but 
with actually the young people, the interpreters who are in their 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. and they just have this, um, this ethic of loving their country and wanting their country to get better. And so they just had a strong commitment to, to these kids that were in these orphanages. They wanted to make sure that they made it all the way through adulthood without mm -hmm. kind of returning to the same cycle of drugs and prostitution and ending up you know, passing away by the time they're 25. So they just had a commitment to that. So it was just kind of an easy conduit to me to helping them. I mean, I came home, I told my mom, man, I want to help these people. And she said, you're going to learn to bake. And I was like, what? <laughs> wait, wait, why was that? Why was that her solution? Um, I am not a baker, by the way. So uh, growing up, my mom made these fantastic uh, enchiladas and this wonderful New Mexico food, and I was a stubborn kid that would eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Mm -hmm. But she just was like, you're going to make these cinnamon rolls, and these are going to sell. And I did. I started learning to make cinnamon rolls. I went over to her house at 4 in the morning, and she started coming over to my house at 4 in the morning, and pretty soon she left me alone and said, you can do it. And so it started out with cinnamon rolls, and then I started making cakes, and the cakes were first. They were terrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I got better. I just kept trying. Tell me why there there are a lot of people that have visited a country on you know a mission trip, mm -hmm. uh, whether they're teaching English or delivering Bibles or doing service projects mm -hmm. in you know Central America or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, they don't always come back and start a new business, mm -hmm. rearrange their lives, and <laughs> you know devote all these hours to helping the people that they served. Yes. Why do you think? that experience in Ukraine hit the way that it did? I think there's this power of the word thank you. And I think it was the gratitude of the people in Ukraine. So as you know, the war started in Ukraine at the end of 13, mm -hmm. the beginning of 14. Yeah, that was also a very turbulent time. Yes, yes. And so having just met them that summer, I just, they were just so overly, overtly grateful for every single little thing that they got. And so I would just bake a couple of dozen cinnamon rolls every couple of weeks. So it might have been maybe $100 mm -hmm. in the beginning. So it wasn't much. It was very little. Tell me what you were initially doing you know, with, with that $100. What, what did you want it to do? You know, if, if you could raise money here and send it to the people you knew yeah. in Ukraine, like what, what was that going to accomplish? So um, my friend in Ukraine that is the partner to Kind House Ukraine Bakery is Dmitry Pashenko. And so I just, I got to know him and his heart and his love for not just orphans, but for people who were in deep need. And so he was watching um, humanitarian aid happening on his side of the world. And sometimes uh, humanitarian aid can be, they're, they're, they're global. So they come in with trucks of food and diapers and, um, you know, paper items, but they're not able to be as succinct and direct with the, the specific needs of people. Right. And There's a lot so, of red tape involved. A with that lot stuff. of red tape. And so also the fact that, you know, at some nonprofits, I'm not going to point out any, but that, you know, um, up to 50, up to 90% goes to their administrative mm -hmm. fees. And so only 10% of that is actually going to help people. And so he just kind of saw that, and so he he just 
I don't know. I feel like that he and I had a lot of good conversations about how to help people. I um, really trusted him with those funds. And so sending those funds to him meant that I was helping a kid that was about to head off to college for the first time. And they didn't have parents to set up their dorm. They didn't have anybody that was going to help them do that. So he was able to buy what their needs were to get them set up in a dorm. And then eventually um, actually helping them heat homes in the war zone of Ukraine. So there would be people that didn't, they were elderly and disabled and they, they would collect sticks in the wood to try to, you know, heat their homes. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about a little tiny house, but um, in desperate need of, of some coal to put in that little fire pit so that they could stay warm in the wintertime. So we just started with a few homes um, and I mean, the last count we did over a hundred. So, uh, this winter we did not finish heating homes in the war zone before, um, the war broke out, but we did get to about 44 homes. Okay. So that was, that was very early. Mm-hmm. Were you still teaching and then just baking on the side? Yes. So it started out real, real light and I would only do it a couple of times a month. And then, um, it didn't take too long before I was baking every morning at 4 a.m. Wow. before I went to school. And then at night I would bake, you know, in preparation for the next morning. So if I had to decorate a cake the next morning, I would bake it the night before and then still get up at 4 and do what I needed to do. And so I taught for six years and then I became an assistant principal. Same thing. So um, just the more it increased, the more, you know, that we that I baked. And Pretty soon I started getting other people on board to help me. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2018, we became an official nonprofit. And so uh, now we have about 65-ish volunteers that flow in and out. Which is an incredible number. It is. And these last two weeks, we probably have not had less than five volunteers come to our house every single day. And it's still operating out of your home. It is still still like this little cottage Yeah, the cottage food law. Yeah, we have to follow all of that. So yeah, we we're we're careful. We're friends with um, Anthony Spinell, so he mm-hmm. he can call me and say, "Hey, <laughs> how's everything you, looking? I need you to do this." Yeah. Like so, yeah, we we stay in close contact and make sure we're doing what we're supposed to because we definitely want to be able to keep providing the things that we need to for Ukraine. Can you give me an idea of the volume of <clears throat> sure your your whether it's number of customers or how much, sure. how many cinnamon rolls you're making? I mean, oh man, um, well so in the year before, in 2020, we did um, just over 100,000. And then this last year, we passed 200,000. 200,000 dollars, dollars that, we, okay. that we were that able to, to make and send to Ukraine. And so I wouldn't necessarily call it just in cinnamon rolls or cakes because mm-hmm. we kind of have the life cycle of a donor. So they first, we get them in the door, they, they're buying cinnamon rolls or they're buying something sweet every couple of months. And then pretty soon they start seeing our YouTube channel and they see all of the um, positive effects that are happening because of Kind House. And then they start thinking, oh, I, I should probably volunteer. And maybe they don't have time to volunteer. So they start bringing flour and sugar hmm. and things like that to our porch. And then pretty soon they're like, okay, I have to come volunteer. So um, they break through the doors and they um, get started volunteering firsthand and they find out that it's real and that we really are making a really huge, uh, profound effect in Ukraine. And then they become monthly donors and then they start telling other people about it. So maybe they can't volunteer as much, mm-hmm. but they start, you know, being advocates for for our cause. So we just keep growing. We just keep growing and growing. And I know you've you've had a unique uh, business model 
that it's not necessarily pay this much money for mm-hmm. this many cinnamon rolls or this cake that it's mm-hmm. uh it's sort of donate what you think this is worth um that's right that's and right tell me tell me why you've done it that way uh we just felt like from the very beginning that we wanted people to give from their hearts and we want to win people's hearts we want to win we want to win their passion for loving their neighbor and for loving humanity so it's not just about loving ukraine it's about us driving down the street and being willing to see people who are homeless mm-hmm. and really actually see them. Um, we're not advocating for you handing out cash, but we want you to see people as humans, fellow humans, and and to understand that um, this part of the world is just as delicate as the other part of the world. And we need to give back to our youth and we need to make sure that we're a family and we're a community and that we're cl- closely knit together with the things that actually matter. And you mentioned donors. Do you have some supporters who are like, yeah, I don't need the cinnamon rolls anymore. I just want to give you cash yes. or give you, give you money every month. Yes, yes, we do. We have, we've increased greatly in monthly donors. So um, we want to, as our model, as we look for a storefront and we start pushing towards that, mm-hmm. we really want to have a good balance of like 70% of monthly donors that support us continually and then 30% of people coming through the door okay. buying baked goods. That's our that's our our thing that we're shooting for. So I I know that you've been very busy over the last couple of weeks uh, as mm-hmm. you know the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has has happened. Even though a lot of people were talking about it long before it actually did happen, and I guess it it took a lot of people still off guard. But yes. how has that? Well, tell me to start. How have the last couple of weeks been for your ministry or your nonprofit? I mean, has it just been a an influx of attention it has been an explosion i would say so um so three weeks it'll be three weeks on on tuesday that it that the missiles went off okay so about 10 o'clock at night i start getting messages from the other side of the world and you know uh, first telling me that all the airports are gone um and obviously some very frightened uh kids that have been in the orphanage and they're probably in their third or fourth year of um, of university courses, and they don't have moms and dads to call mm-hmm. and to say, "What do you do in a world crisis?" Right. So, um, as a teacher, luckily I do know some things about crisis. I'm I'm definitely not a counselor or a crisis. Uh, I'm not studied in that area, but just being able to say to them, you know, sit next to somebody, drink water. Um, contact me every hour. I care about you. Uh, hug people. That, mm-hmm. that um, will help the endorphins in your body to relax and for you to think clearly. Get some rest, even if you think that you can't. Um, eat something. Take a shower. Brush your teeth. <laughs> Change your underwear. <laughs> mom stuff. Mom stuff. Mom stuff. All the things we want to tell our kids that that we love them. So those types of things. And I'm even probably telling those things to some of the adults, too, just because um, even though the war uh, obviously did strike up in 2014, this is a completely different thing, having missiles all over your nation, mm-hmm. um, knowing that there is going to be an ongoing crisis and how am I going to mentally get through these days. So that's where it started. I would say uh, definitely the next day um, I just put out a message to all of our volunteers and said, look, I need you to be at my house today. We're going to meet at four o'clock. We're going to talk about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. I need you to be here 
And I was uh, surprised not just with one group of volunteers, but two. So the first group was, um, you know, old school. They've been there. They've helped us. And then the second group was a large group of kids from Emerald College Hmm. that showed up that said, we want to help. We want to be a part of this. And so um, I just brought up the TV screen and we looked at where all the missiles had landed. And we talked about pushing forward, you know, what we need to do to um, not not promote kind house, but promote helping Ukraine. This is not just about our nonprofit. And I'm not about to say to people that we're the exclusive only one that is not factual. Um, I do want people to give to Ukraine and to help Ukraine become better because pushing forward, um, should this crisis end soon, they're going to have obviously um, many years of of recovery and they're going to need some help with that. But at the same time, you are someone who has been talking about Ukraine for years locally. Yes. And so yes. I know, you know, I was I was at Studio Four the Thursday after mm-hmm. the conflict began, the invasion began, and Andy Justice was already talking to you. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I, I called, you know, Glinda because I needed to know what was happening and, and all those things. And that's, um, I, I feel like whether it's a goal or not, it has brought local attention Definitely. to you. Uh, and I wonder, like, how you how you feel about that being the local expert, <laughs> you know? And I'll I'll use air quotes on that, but yeah. the local expert on Ukraine. I will definitely not say I'm an expert, and I I lean heavily into other people to find out what's going on. Um, I I'm just I'm thrilled, first of all, for Ukraine to be getting what they need. This is not not about me, not at all. Um, we have a beautiful community that wants to help. Not only that, um, just 24 hours in, we were contacted from someone in New Hampshire that is with Bakers of America and all these other bakeries found out about me and they want to help as well. So, um, and even internationally. So lots of people know Dima um, on the other side that helps us because he has journalists that continually have gone to Ukraine. Okay. Um, We also have been contacted from a nonprofit in, uh, in the UK. And their job is to raise funds for other humanitarian organizations. And so they contacted me. I talked to them about four in the morning a week ago. And they are interested in uh, pushing funds through us as well hmm. so that we can help with humanitarian aid right on the ground. So Amarillo has been a great um, response to this. We have had uh, our first couple of days, we had 60 to 80 orders a day. So obviously we had to kind of push back on customer orders until people listen, you're going to have to give us a week. And that was hard for people because they, we we want things immediately. We're Americans. We think we can just go through the drive-thru and get things. So that's hard for us, but most everybody has been very responsive and people just keep coming. We're closed today, Jason. We have not baked anything today. Today's Monday. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm watching my, my camera on the porch. People just keep coming and coming and coming and putting donations in the safe. Wow. It's amazing. Do you have a sense, you know, you 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 use your donations to buy coal and, yes. and to help some of the orphans. Is that changed in the past? I mean, now definitely. it's just going towards straight, like, humanitarian yes. kinds of things. Yes, it will definitely be humanitarian aid. So uh, Dimitri has repositioned himself. He's in uh, center Ukraine. He's no longer in the eastern part because okay. that part is a lot more volatile. Um, pretty much his words were that uh, they they didn't know really where to go or where to land because even Western Ukraine is now being attacked. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, they've just kind of landed right in the middle and they're going to, he and his wife are not wanting to escape Ukraine. They, they want to be there and they want to help their fellow Ukrainians. And that's just kind of the heart of, you know, 90% of the people that I've met in Ukraine, they're just, they're ready to dive in and help one another. I think a lot of people here on this side of it, I mean, obviously so much attention is, is being given to that area, but we're also realizing that we don't know a lot about Mm -hmm. Ukraine, about its history, about Russia. You know, we know maybe the big headlines, but don't have that on the ground connection, don't have that experience in the country. And I wonder if you could, I don't know, maybe educate us a little bit and just like, what, what do I not know about Ukraine? Possibly no, but in 91, they broke away from the Soviet Union and became their own nation. Mm -hmm. So um, you will sometimes hear in the news, you will hear people say the Ukraine. Right. Well, the Ukraine means that it is a province of the Soviet Union. It means it is like the Texas. So Texas is, we're part of the United States. So naming it the Ukraine is kind of insultive. So you should prevent from saying the Ukraine. Um, So they broke away in 91 and uh, have been their own sovereign nation for 31 years. So that's an an important key to know. The people on the eastern part of Ukraine are still, um, they speak Russian and Ukrainian. It's similar to us living in El Paso right? because we have a lot of people, uh, Spanish speakers. And if you lived in El Paso, you would probably have a much better understanding of the Spanish language just because you would be exposed to it more. Um, So it's the same thing there. There is, I would say, a divide in Ukraine with people who speak exclusively Ukrainian, Mm -hmm. and they do not like Russian speakers at all. Um, I would say that that conflict that happened in 2014 was definitely an internal uh, struggle among them, and to the point where... They almost blamed you if you were from the East, that you were Hmm. part of the conflict and that you possibly wanted to become Russia because you speak Russian and you don't speak Ukrainian. So I do think there's a lot of hurt and angst and and, uh, sorrow there that already exists before this conflict has even occurred. Um, I know that even here in the U.S., we have many Ukrainians that have moved here and there are some Russian-speaking Ukrainians and some Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians, and they don't seem to like each other because mm-hmm. it's very much, you know, you need to you need to understand that we're Ukraine. We should be speaking Ukrainian. We shouldn't be speaking Russian. But if that's your mother tongue and that's what you were born with, if I was born speaking Spanish, I would obviously speak Spanish right. more. So anyway, just having a lot of uh, a wealth of compassion and understanding and listening and not making judgments is is super important in this whole conflict. I think we would definitely say that even as Americans that we right. need to be more listeners and less jumping to conclusions. What are some things that that you've heard from your contacts in Ukraine on the ground? Um, you know, maybe, maybe in the lead up to mm-hmm. this, as you know, there there was a lot of discussions about Russia amassing troops mm-hmm. and. Uh, everybody's saying, well, he's going to invade, and Putin said he's not going to invade. And so it, it, it feels like it still took people sort of by surprise, okay. even though like all the pieces were there. Mm-hmm. Were you hearing the same things from your contacts in Ukraine, or were they saying something different maybe than the 
I would say that 90% of them were just like, it's not going to happen. Really? Like just very. And also I think being Ukrainian, they do things when it's time to do things. They don't worry about things in advance. So as Americans, we prepare to take a vacation. We're talking about it a year in advance, right? six months in advance. And they think that's just crazy. Like, why would you not? I mean, like, okay, maybe a month in advance or a couple of weeks in advance, but don't talk about it obsessively six weeks in advance or six months in advance because, you know, you should live life as it is. And Mm -hmm. that is just um, maybe even a European thing. Take things as they are and um, don't jump ahead, Mm -hmm. you know. So uh, that definitely was a thought. Uh, Dima, um, our interpreter, I would say that he was a little bit more in the know because there were constant journalists coming in. Hmm. And one of the things that one of the journalists said to him is, listen, if this war starts, it could be it could be our fault as journalists because we're we're ramping it up and we're right. we're making it the news. Kind of feeding that yes. that fire yes. with attention. Yes, but it's still even still, I think it took him by surprise. Hmm. The probably just the the mass of it. Um, sending missiles to every single airport, that's a lot. You know, it's it wasn't like it was a little uh, invading part of the country. It was, we're stronghold. Right. And I don't want to get too too deep into geopolitics because, you know, you're a baker and I'm mm-hmm. a guy with a podcast. <laughs> but, you know, one of the major stories that, you know, is being told over the past two or three weeks is about how much resistance Ukraine has has provided, and and whether it's Russia and Putin didn't didn't expect it, or didn't prepare enough, or underestimated mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, but th- that is something that feels maybe positive, and and feels surprising to a lot of people. And I wonder, like, is that surprising to you? Is that surprising to your context? I mean, what kinds of things are you hearing? I don't from think them? it's surprising to me because. Um, I don't know, I, having been freed and and getting to experience democracy and being able to fight for your freedom is it's a gift. And um, I will say that definitely the donors over the last three weeks ha- that have come to my door again and again and again, that I, I have not I've heard from young people, old people, people of all shapes and sizes and and ethnicities that we've all said, how grateful we are that someone has fought and died for us to have the freedoms that we have here in America. Mm-hmm. And and it's no different in Ukraine. They but it's even fresher because it's only been 30 years. Yeah, it's not. It's not hundreds of years. Centuries ago. Yes, yes. And so it's very fresh for them. So these young people that are in their in their 30s basically, they understand their heritage. They understand very much that taking up arms means that they are fighting for not becoming Russia and not mm-hmm. having um, their ears and eyes blocked out and not being able to have the real news be told and, and having to sneak around. And yeah, they don't want that. They don't, they're not willing to go back to that. So uh, are they willing to die for it? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the kind of thing that I, I think has caused me to think a lot about that. You know, you, you see dads, Say goodbye to their families because they're going to stay and fight, and they want their families to go someplace safe. I'm just like, I don't, I don't know how I would respond to a situation like that. And it makes you grateful that I don't feel like we're going to have to have a situation like that, and and that that hard won democracy 
when it is fresh, it's still really fragile. And, and that's, I think, a big difference between here and there. Um, but it does, you know, you put yourself in, in their shoes, a little empathy. It, it causes a lot of reflection here. There's one girl, her name is Jana, and um, she is married, and her and her husband and his parents lived in Kiev. And um, early on, they were not going to leave. No one was going to leave. And then it became apparent that um, they were going to be surrounded. And so they actually sent Jana to, um, to Poland hmm. uh, without them. And the mother stayed, and as did the son and the dad. And the dad is, I think he's ex-Air Force, so he's military there. And um, as she's traveling towards the, the border, I mean, she is weeping and crying and sending me messages, and she is just brokenhearted mm-hmm. that her husband has said, no, you will go, you will not stay. And so um, she is in Sweden now with some friends. But obviously, you know, watching it so closely from that side, she's brokenhearted. And um, we've seen I've several people that have gone over the line. Uh, one is Andre Bellaconia and his wife, Marina and Paulina, have just headed towards the West. And he remains. And I just, uh, my goodness, their patriotism mm-hmm. to, to be able to say goodbye to their family and say, no, I'm staying and I'm fighting. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'd like to hear from you. There are still a lot of local people um, who very organically, you know, have uh, have become aware of what you're doing and, and want to help you um, and want to help the people of Ukraine. What is most helpful? Say there's there's somebody listening to this podcast and they're like, OK, I, I can support this. Mm-hmm. What's best for them to do to help the people that you help? Is it just cash donations? Mm-hmm. Is it telling other people about it? Is it ordering something? I mean, what, what do you want? I think it's all of that. Um, probably the first and foremost would be getting on board and becoming a monthly, monthly donor would be the very best thing to do. Okay. Uh, we can buy our products from affiliated and, and get them a little bit more wholesale. Obviously people, you know, who are running to the grocery store, if they would rather just pick up some butter and some powdered sugar for that, for us, that's perfect. Our top three items we go through are, are salted butter, powdered sugar, and evaporated milk. We go through a ton of that. But we are we do have plenty of supplies at this moment um, as we continue to bake, you know, 60-plus orders a day. Mm-hmm. Obviously, those, those amounts will go down. Also, just come to the doorstep. We are open from 6 a.m. until 2 every day. Come join us. Come wash dishes. We have people who show up at 5 o'clock every morning to wash dishes and to just help get the orders out the door. Um, we welcome any help. We were inundated with help um, two Saturdays ago, and I think it would be real easy as a volunteer to think, oh, they have a, a ton of volunteers. We don't. They don't really need us. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Um, there were 20 of us, and we were all working elbow to elbow, but we worked the entire time. And so, you know, as we have a huge amount of volunteers, we have work to do, too. We still have to take care of our families. So there's going to be a normal ebb and flow of volunteers that come in and out. But we need you. You know, we need people to come and help us and to be a part of this. Um, Definitely cash. Definitely definitely, um, monthly donations. Definitely supplies. But more than anything, just getting the word out that we really are. We're just there to help Ukraine. 
And we're not particular about how you help Ukraine. Mm -hmm. If you need to um, give it to an organization that you prefer, we're glad for you to do that. But please know that our heart is definitely about helping Ukraine in this process for humanitarian aid and then eventually for recovery with that. Right. So we will fight for that. We will we will work until till our tail ends fall off. The last thing I, I wanted to ask to kind of close this section is, you know, you are dependent on the generosity of local people, whether it's financial or volunteering their time or just the generosity of ordering your products, you know, and, and telling people about it. What have you what have you learned, you know, since you moved out of teaching and, and into baking and, and nonprofit management and all that stuff? What have you learned about the people of this area? People want your whole heart. They want to know your whole heart and things. And um, I've heard people say things like business is business, but I just think at the end of the day, we all want to be community together. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Brene Brown. Yeah. But one of the things that I loved that she said was about uh, these women that were washing together down by the river. Do you know this story? I don't know that story. So there were these women, and they would come every week, and they'd bring their washing to the river, and they would all wash their clothes together, and they would share their sorrows and their pains, and, and just they would be community together. And one by one, they got electric washer machines, and so they weren't together as much anymore. And it kind of broke their community because – they weren't able to be physically with one another. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that when we're in the kitchen and we're, I mean, we're hearing news from people across the world and we're washing dishes and laughing and baking things together. We do make mistakes too. <laughs> <laughs> but just becoming a community together, real close-knit community together and sharing our pains and sorrows and not just about what's happening in Ukraine, but... But being real with one another, I would say we're kind of our own little church and we're our own little small group. And so we're those women washing down by the river. But it includes everybody, it includes men, women, children. So we're becoming a community together. This episode of Hammerello is supported by the Discover Amarillo app. This free download is designed to be a resource for new Amarillo residents and anyone else who wants to keep up with local events, activities, shopping, businesses, and more. It even maintains a list of family-friendly restaurants with Kids Eat Free offers. You can find out more at discoveramarillotx.com or head to your app store of choice to download Discover Amarillo today. That's the Discover Amarillo app, now available for iPhone and Android. Okay, I'm back with Glenda Moore. Glenda, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the Burnett No. 2 Wellhead, which was used for the first successful oil well in the Texas Panhandle, located on the Four Sixes Ranch in Carson County. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, uh, this is a question I've been asking all my guests the past Oh, two years at this point. But what's one thing the pandemic has revealed to you about local people? We do good under pressure. Hmm. We do really good under pressure, and we cling to what's most important. We get rid of all of the the unimportant things, and we cling to our family and to our, our churches and to our community. And I think we kind of we're able to wipe the slate of, of the things that are 
plastic. Not important. Hmm. I wonder why you're the first person who said that we do well under pressure. And I, I wonder if there's something about culture here or the history mm -hmm. here um, that, that makes that true. I don't know. I think we go, it goes down roots to our roots to our, maybe for me, uh, just definitely a family of, of farmers. And mm -hmm. um, you know what? Uh, tornadoes can come and, and wipe out our crops. And you know what? We're going to get up the next day and we're going to wipe the slate crane and we're going to, we're going to keep working. We're going to pull up our bootstraps and we're going to do whatever it takes. So those things are, um, they sure, they create some sorrow and some pain, but they also remind us that that's life, mm. and, and we've got to keep moving. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I would say we're probably inundated with convenience stores and convenience in, in our lives. Mm -hmm. Things are far too convenient um, at any given moment whenever – we sneeze or cough, we can hit the corner and get whatever we need. We're not having to struggle for it. So I think maybe that might be my answer. And that's probably not a local thing, maybe a, an American thing maybe, for sure. Maybe an American thing. What does this area not have enough of? This area does not have enough ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Bluebell is good. But more ice cream, we can't we can't go wrong. And bakeries, I love I love the rich bakeries that we have here in Amarillo. But I would love some more bakeries. And that's it, maybe it's uh, it's because of the the cottage law. Mm -hmm. um, we have had like several startups mm -hmm. over the past three or four years uh, because you know there's opportunities to sell in the community market. Yes. There's, I mean, yes. there's a, it feels like it's moving in that direction. Yes. Uh, you still think there's there's some more growth to be had? Then. Absolutely, absolutely. I think we could use a lot more. Frank's Bakeries in the mm -hmm. world. Okay. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? It is the friendliest place on earth. It is the friendly. It's, I don't care what you say about Disney World. Amarillo mm -hmm. is the best place on earth. I've, I've met people who are from all parts of the world that come here and they're like, this is just, you can't, you can't go wrong. You can't fall on the street without somebody coming out and yeah. saying, are you hurt? How can I help you? I think that's true, and I'm always surprised when traveling uh, to to see that that's not the case in other places. Um, you you want to say hi to somebody as you pass them, and you're like, "Oh, that was probably really weird for them," because uh, it's not common. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? My favorite neighborhood would probably be either the Emerson neighborhood or the Mesa Verde neighborhood. Okay, I love um, I love I love watching. Diversity. I love watching the little girls and their little hajibs out on the playground and um, racing the boys and beating them. And <laughs> I just, I love just the languages that you hear mm -hmm. and how just the overcoming of, of everything, just how that they, they rise. I love seeing how teachers and educators and people in Amarillo embrace them and help them to rise and be, and be part of Amarillo. And I know that even since you've been involved, you know, at, at places like Emerson, they've probably become even more diverse. Like yes. there's been yes. even further movement toward new languages, people from different countries, that, that that just continues to change. Yes. What's your favorite local restaurant? I had a really hard time with this one. So I have like a top three. Okay, we can take three. <laughs> uh, I love Youngbloods. Mm -hmm. It's a great little restaurant, especially for um, for breakfast. They have do a have a good breakfast. Lunch, 
yeah. type thing. They just, they have really all of the waitresses and the, the wait staff are just, they're Amarillo. They just, they, they just speak highly of Amarillo. The next one is Lone Star Bar and Grill. Okay. Have you ever been there? The one out yes. toward um, Tanglewood. Yes, yes. And again, just like little tables side by side, and you might sit at a table with another couple and just, I mean, fantastic people, fantastic mm-hmm. humans. So really it's, good. it's known for its steaks. Like it's not, yes. not the kind of place that you think, oh, there's a really good steakhouse. But Oh, man, it's good. It's good. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Well, that one is, um, it's a, it's, this will be my restaurant number three slash bakery slash coffee shop. So Garrisol okay. is, um, I, I would, I would probably not just go into a coffee shop for its coffee. It would have to have some really good bakery items cause I'm, I'm a baker. So I love going to Garrisol. I mm-hmm. love seeing her beautiful items. Jessica's amazing and her staff is very warm and friendly and they love being there. So um, part of going to any restaurant or any bakery is seeing that their staff, they're not disgruntled. They, yeah. they're happy and they, they, they're part of the culture. So it's a wonderful place. Yeah. Big, big fan of Jessica yeah. and uh, Ruthie works there. They're both friends with the magazine. Oh, so yeah. Super great people. Uh, okay. So when was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Um, probably just a couple of weeks ago. Really? Yeah. So we have all kinds of um, missionaries and friends that come through town and that's, that's just an easy spot to go to. Okay. And so it's a fun little place. And I love the little food trucks that are there. Yeah. It's a good so change over the past couple of years. It is years. a great change. So I love it. And I'm glad that we're, we're making that place and that spot, even a, even better place for people to come through Amarillo and see. Okay. So that concludes the eight straight questions. Glenda, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Oh, I know that you have interviewed her before, but Chandra Perkins is just the most amazing um, director of StoryBridge. Mm -hmm. And StoryBridge is such a beautiful thing, not just for Amarillo. And I really do hope and pray that she will um, expand so much that she's a global thing because uh, one of the things she talked about just recently is being able to put 21 books in every single home um, in Amarillo and in the Amarillo community is going to help those children have a better education and a better start at the world. And so I just I believe in her cause. I believe in what she's doing. And she's really got some great research to back that up. So if nobody knows about StoryBridge, they should definitely get involved and uh, look that up. And be sure and back that because every child deserves 21 books, at mm-hmm. least 21 books in their home to be saturated with uh, just educational things and the love of reading. Okay. Big fan over here of, uh, of StoryBridge. So I appreciate that one. Uh, Glenda Moore, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks I appreciate for inviting it. Me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Glenda for the interview. She's been really busy lately. I was so glad that we could find a chance for the two of us to talk. You can learn more about her bakery at kindhousebakery.org. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode, and thanks to our sponsors, Blue Handle Publishing, the Discover Amarillo app, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum. If you like this podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave a review if you want to. This helps other people find the show. As usual, this podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Corey Burns, 
Wes Reeves, Jason Burr, Patrick Burns, and Katie Linger. This has been episode 239. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.